0: Welcome to Inside Scope, the American Gastroenterological Association podcast that will help you advance your patient care one half-hour segment at a time. Join us to hear from the experts, learn new skills, and stay abreast of changing best practices. We'll be tackling a different topic each month, so make sure to subscribe and join us on our mission to improve digestive health for all.
1: Welcome everyone to this season of AGS Inside Scope podcast. Colorectal Cancer Screening to Save Lives. In this season, we'll talk to gastroenterologists and primary care physicians to break down the recent updates from US Preventive Services Task Force on screening for colorectal cancer in high-risk groups and addressing unique challenges for various groups. Our goal is to help clinicians understand how they can help to reduce incidence and mortality for colorectal cancer. I am Chike Dalbeni, Professor of Family Medicine, and Chief Health Equity Officer for the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center. I'm also Associate Director for Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion for the Ohio State University Comprehensive Cancer Center.
2: And I am David Lieberman. I'm a Professor of Medicine in the Division of Gastroenterology and Hepatology at Oregon Health and Science University in Portland, Oregon.
1: David and I are your hosts for this five-episode season. This season is supported by an independent medical education grant for exact sciences. In this episode, David and I are talking about the importance of primary care clinicians in identifying and managing patients who are at high risk for colorectal cancer. Our guest today is Dr. Swati Patel, Associate Professor and Director of the Gastrointestinal Cancer Risk and Prevention Center at the University of Colorado School of Medicine and Shoe's Medical Campus. Welcome Swati.
0: Thank you so much for having me today. Um, It's really nice to be here given how important this topic is and the work uh, that I do in improving identification and management of patients who might be at increased risk of colon cancer based on family history and genetics.
1: Great. And that's a very important uh, introduction to our conversation today because some portion of colorectal cancer is uh, genetic, but a large portion of it is non-genetic or what's called sporadic. Can you talk briefly about that interface between the two ideologies for colorectal cancer?
0: Absolutely. So what we know about colon cancer is that approximately 10% of all colon cancers, if we do comprehensive genetic testing, are associated with an increased risk of colon cancer based on a clearly identified genetic predisposition. But that leaves us with ninety percent of individuals who, even if we did comprehensive genetic testing, we wouldn't find a specific inherited genetic cause. And that's really the patient population uh, that's extremely important for us to be aware of and to improve identification of individuals who may be at increased risk in the absence of a specific hereditary condition.
1: That's really great, and and I would tell you, for a primary care clinician, it's very useful to understand those uh, distinctions. When should a primary care clinician initiate discussions about colorectal cancer risk? And what should that discussion include?
0: This is a really important question. I think many primary care doctors are extremely overwhelmed with the multitude of things that they have to address with each patient. And oftentimes, there's this conception that colon cancer is a disease of older individuals. But I strongly believe that the the time to talk about colon cancer risk is the moment a primary care doctor meets a patient no matter how young or old that individual may be. And there's a few different reasons for that. One is because there may be individuals who are at increased risk that are much younger than a primary care doctor may expect. And having that conversation early is very important to identify those individuals. And then I think the other piece is that it's important for primary care doctors and patients to be on the same page about critical importance of colon cancer risk assessment, even if it doesn't necessarily change immediate management, but to prime a patient to be ready for colon cancer screening when they are eligible, if they know what's ahead for them. So that that conversation really can revolve around two main things at that initial introduction. The first thing is it's very important to collect a very comprehensive family history. Uh, And that would be a family history of both colon cancer as well as precancer or colon polyps within the family. And then the other piece would be discussion of whether the patient has any symptoms that might be a red flag for colon cancer.
2: Swati, this is David. Maybe you can tell us a little about what symptoms you think might be important, particularly in younger individuals.
0: That's a great question. One of the most concerning symptoms is rectal bleeding. This is a very, very challenging issue uh, across the board, but certainly for our frontline primary care providers, because it's a very common complaint that patients bring to their medical providers. But rectal bleeding is a very important red flag to recognize. Although it can certainly be from benign conditions such as hemorrhoids or fissures, what's important to understand is that Having that symptom, particularly in young patients, is associated with a tenfold increased risk of colorectal cancer. And so that's probably the single most important symptom to ensure is, is thoroughly evaluated.
1: And that, that's really important because actually today, earlier today, I was talking with a patient about the importance of getting a clinical workup evaluation for rectal bleeding because he asked about, which symptoms should I look out for? Uh, science of colorectal cancer, but exactly to your point. And I would also maybe add and would love your perspective on David's as well, that in some ways when we test someone for uh, fecal testing for screening and it's positive, in essence what we're saying that's occult bleeding and that needs to get worked up and that's why colonoscopy is needed perhaps promptly as quickly as possible. I would love to sort of hear your thoughts before we continue the rest of the interview.
0: Absolutely. In fact, stool-based testing to assess for microscopic blood is a very, very important screening tool in our population uh, of individuals that don't have symptoms. And that rationale is because we suspect that there are either asymptomatic colon tumors or even precancerous polyps that shed blood into the stool. And so we've long recognized microscopic blood and certainly macroscopic blood as risk factors for colon cancer.
2: Spotty, let, let me try to nail you down a little bit because I think a lot of our listeners might wonder, well, what if I have a 38-year-old person who tells me that they're seeing a- occasional bright red blood on a toilet paper or at the end of the bowel movement that's occurring maybe once or twice a month? What's the threshold for evaluating uh, that patient in your mind?
0: That's a really good question. You know, as an internist by training, I really want to rely on my clinical history and physical examination. But the reality is benign conditions such as hemorrhoids are so common that even the presence of those things can oftentimes obscure pathology upstream, whether that be precancerous polyps or colon cancer. And so I think for the very common practical scenario that you present, a young patient with intermittent, bright red blood, scant I think the, the practical approach would be to do a thorough history and physical examination, including an anorectal examination in the office. And if there's not a clear explanation to symptoms and resolution within 60 days, that patient should have an endoscopic evaluation. The approach to endoscopic evaluation can be discussed with your referring provider, and it may be setting specific for young patients, you know, under the age of 40 that don't have any other. Symptoms or family history or abnormalities in their laboratory evaluation, you could consider a flexible sigmoidoscopy with the understanding that if that's abnormal, that may explain the etiology of bleeding. However, if there's not an explanation, it might require a follow up colonoscopy. Alternatively, in patients over the age of 40 or patients who have other symptoms such as abdominal pain or diarrhea or a family history, it may be more worthwhile to directly go to colonoscopy to evaluate those patients.
2: Let me ask you about one other, it's not really a symptom, but it's a sign that comes up in clinical practice and primary care. I draw some blood on my 40-year-old patient and I see that the patient has very mild anemia, which is microcytic, and I check a ferritin level and it's lower than normal. What do I do in that situation?
0: So you describe a scenario consistent with iron deficiency anemia. Again, There's really strong evidence that the presence of iron-deficiency anemia, particularly in young patients, is strongly associated with colon cancer, up to a tenfold increased risk compared to those without iron-deficiency anemia, and that's controlling for a variety of other clinical factors. This is a challenging scenario because certainly, for instance, young women may have iron-deficiency anemia for other reasons, uh, such as menses, or individuals who have dietary restrictions that may have alternate explanations but with that said, an individual that you describe, a young patient particularly who has a low ferritin, is anemic, microcytic, uh, should have a thorough evaluation to exclude colorectal cancer if there's no alternate explanation that uh, has already been identified.
1: Those uh, really important points uh, that David brought up and Swati, thank you so much for providing such clear explanation for our listeners to Guide clinical decision making uh, really important. Thank you. As we continue the conversation, I want to come back to perhaps where we started, which is about the scenarios of family history, sometimes genetic risk, but family history in general. This is a moving area sometimes because see, you know we we had thresholds that have been removed in terms of the age int- uh, of the family member. But let's talk a little bit uh, more specifically about uh, family history of colon cancer. You can take it together or separately or precancerous lesions or polyps. How would that affect risk and even the recommendations for screening?
0: So we talked about the 10% that have a clearly identified genetic condition that we can diagnose on germline genetic testing. If we put those individuals aside, there's an additional approximately 25% of individuals with colon cancer that have some family history. Whether that's an inherited issue or shared environmental risk factors is not entirely clear, and it's likely a combination of those things. But the reality is that individuals who have a first degree family member with colon cancer, no matter how old or young that colon cancer diagnosis is made, have an over twofold increased risk of developing colon cancer. If that first degree relative is young, under the age of 50, that risk actually goes up to almost fourfold. And so based on this kind of clear increased risk, multiple professional medical societies recommend that individuals who have a first-degree family member diagnosed with colon cancer should be screened earlier and should undergo screening more frequently than individuals who don't have a family history. And so that means really if we look at the National Comprehensive Cancer Network or the United States Multi-Society Task Force to initiate colon cancer screening at age 40. What's interesting is that we know for the most part that cancers develop from precancerous colorectal polyps. And although not all polyps grow and turn into cancer, we know that there's a subset of polyps that have already progressed to a certain degree and are essentially considered the immediate precursors to cancer. And that's what we refer to as advanced colorectal polyps. That includes polyps that are larger than a centimeter, those that have high-grade dysplasia or villous architecture or serrated lesions that have any dysplasia. These are really the high-risk polyps that have a strong chance of growing and turning into cancer. And studies have actually shown that these polyps actually confer the same risk to first-degree family members as cancer. So those that have a first-degree relative with an advanced polyp have a two-fold increased risk. If that polyp is diagnosed at a young age, first-degree family members have an almost four-fold increased risk. And so Intuitively and accordingly, our professional societies essentially recommend more intensive screening for individuals with the first-degree relative with precancer as well as cancer.
1: Thank you. And this is another area in which it can be challenging to advise patients on what to do next. And clearly, genetic counseling and other things can be helpful in, in sorting through the um, challenges. I do have maybe a couple of additional questions, if I may bring those up. Clearly, the number of family members who are affected, you know, biological relatives who are affected also will increase risk. The other question that could be trickier for clinicians, primary care clinicians, is what if it's a non-colorectal cancer history in the family? Are there certain cancers that may also increase risk even if it's not colorectal cancer?
0: That's a great question. Uh, The field of genetics is rapidly evolving, and our understanding of these syndromes and the cancers associated with them continues to evolve. What I will say, and what I really talk to my trainees about, is it's really, really challenging to grasp the detailed criteria for every single syndrome out there, all the different cancers associated with each syndrome. But to try to just keep in mind a few simple red flags for these genetic syndromes or hereditary syndromes. One is if you encounter a family with early age onset diagnosis of any cancer, solid tumor, whether that's colon, breast, ovarian, et cetera. The other is if there's a strong family history of cancers, particularly on one side of the family, particularly if any of those cancers are occurring at young ages. And then when you encounter a family where there's individuals who had multiple primary cancers. So a colon cancer, and then years later, an ovarian cancer. So those can be happening at the same time, synchronous cancers or metachronous cancers that happen at different times. I think those are just very simple red flags that should give us all pause to say, look, this might be an individual outside of our usual kind of 25% of family history. There might be a hereditary syndrome at play, and that might be somebody to phone a friend about to collect kind of a detailed multi-generation cancer family history and determine whether that patient might benefit from genetic counseling, genetic testing. Swanee, I want to bring us
2: back to something you mentioned earlier about the family history of somebody that might have high-risk polyps. So let's say Chike is seeing a patient in his primary care practice and the patient says, yeah, my dad had some polyps do you have some practical suggestions for him to try to figure out whether these are important polyps or should we just assume they're important? What do you do in clinical practice about that?
0: That is such a critically important point. If we take a step back, if we just take the average 50-year-old male, we will find a possibly precancer polyp in over 50% of patients. And so the key is to really distinguish the small, low-risk polyps that we very commonly find from the select few, anywhere between 5 and 11% of individuals who might have these large polyps with high-risk features under the microscope that we actually considered advanced polyps and the precursors to cancer. And to that kind of practical scenario, I think it's, number one, important to gather more information. There's no immediate response needed based on that report from the patient. It's a common scenario and one that I think we need to kind of take different approaches to improving. I think the most immediate thing and practical thing that you could possibly do in the clinic, Dr. Debaney, is give your patient some homework and say, thank you for mentioning that your dad has colon polyps. As you probably know, not all polyps are the same do me a favor and text your dad and ask him to take a screenshot of his colonoscopy report, take a picture of the pathology report, and please, with his permission, share that with me. And I think that is really the most critical piece of information you can get from your patient to determine whether that patient would benefit from earlier screening. Because I think it would be untenable and unadvisable to refer any patient with a family history of polyps for earlier screening, and it wouldn't benefit the patient. It certainly would overwhelm our capacity to to perform screening in the patients who really need it. I will say, as a gastroenterologist, we have a lot of work to do. We conducted a study where we surveyed patients who have advanced polyps and asked them a series of questions. And even the patients who had those polyps, only about 39% even knew their polyps were precancerous, let alone these advanced precancerous polyps. So I think As you struggle with this on the primary care side, us GI doctors, we have to do a much, much better job of very much clearly stating the risk associated with the polyps, and not just to our patient, who will come back in three years if we ask them to, but to also include a line about the possible risk conferred to first-degree family members so that that is then in their medical record, and they can be reminded to share that information with their family members, and that information then can really inform screening individuals who are truly at high risk.
2: I have a question actually for you, Chike, and and Swati. So you've been a conscientious primary care provider. You've obtained a family history when you first met the patient. How often should we be following up on that family history to see if there's been a change? Because a sibling, somebody may have a sibling that developed colon cancer, in their forties, ten years after you enrolled that patient in your primary care practice, what do you do in practice? And Swati, what do you recommend?
1: I will tell you what I do in practice, and and I think some of the challenge to ascertaining family history is because the annual physical exam is is not what it used to be. Incidentally, we I believe wrote something about it in some of our chapters on up to date for those who use up to date and that for our listeners who are listening to this conversation we had recommended starting that conversation at age 20 but listening to your advice we may have to look and see if we need to revise that but back to your question though i would do that every year and uh, because history is changed the next opportunity you have about once a year for patients to discuss their risk because that's part of the annual or wellness exam As much as we talk about exercise, physical activity more correctly, their diet, it's also their family history and any changes in their family history. And that includes any cancer, but specifically colorectal cancer as well. There's no set guideline that I've seen somewhere. And I look to the two of you, maybe Swati can tell us as to how frequently we should update that. But my recommendation is next time you see the patient for a wellness exam, at least about once a year to update that history.
0: I wholeheartedly agree with that. And I might be controversial in putting out a call to action. It's 2022. People update their statuses online with every meal they have and photographs to go with it. I think this is a great opportunity for us to engage with our patients and empower them to continually update this and take the burden off of the primary care doctor to add this to the long list of things that you review annually, but to leverage our electronic health records to really emphasize the importance of patient-entered information. And so, I think it's something that we have not taken advantage of with these large EHR systems that we have, but it would be a great opportunity to empower our patients to keep it continually updated, just like they keep their social media continually updated.
1: And I think to that point, if, if there's a change in your history, to go in and update your history at that point and not to wait for the doctor's visit.
2: Well, maybe as we wrap up this conversation, Swati, you can kind of give us some take home points about. Practical steps that everyone can take to improve the identification and evaluation of high risk patients?
0: Absolutely. So, I think I might close the conversation the way we started it. I think one of the most important messages is that we should all, primary care as well as subspecialists, be talking to patients about colon cancer risk the moment we meet them. And that can be a brief conversation collecting red flag family history as well as red flag symptoms. I think the other kind of very practical piece is to appreciate that family history of advanced polyps confers the same level of risk as family history of cancer. And this is a challenging situation because many people have low-risk polyps, and so it's finding kind of the high-risk diamond in the rough, if you will, but really kind of clarifying to patients that not all polyps are the same and asking them to retrieve records of family members' polyp history, Pathology results to review. And sometimes giving patients homework can really empower them to understand how critically important this information is in their clinical care as opposed to just reflexively ordering colonoscopies on individuals. And then I think it's an important call to action as we think about how we approach reducing risk in our patient population, whether it's your primary care panel, whether it's a larger system really thinking through multidisciplinary ways to leverage some of the technology that we have available to us, electronic health records, to not only collect some of this information and be a storage unit for some of this information, whether it's family history, whether it's laboratory data, but to convert that into easy-to-use clinical decision-making tools. That, for instance, if a patient does enter new family history that potentially, you know, trigger an alert based on current guidelines. I think we have a lot of work to do in that field, but could be a way to really streamline and automate action on some of this important information and relieve the burden from the individual provider and the individual patient to address it.
1: Well, thank you for those really important, critically important uh, points about addressing risk, high-risk patients or people at high risk for colorectal cancer and getting genetic history. I would add that this is a particularly important area for people from racial and ethnic backgrounds, minority backgrounds, because uh, the absence of good family history could potentially put people at preventable risk from not detecting colon cancer earlier, because knowing so could allow you to get screened earlier. So thank you so much, and uh, David, I appreciate your contributions and points as well. So thank you Swati for this uh, very important conversation. Um, David and I certainly have enjoyed this conversation. I bet it's going to be informative for our listeners. Uh, Thank you all for joining us for this episode on the importance of primary care clinicians in identifying and managing patients at high risk for colorectal cancer. You can find all five episodes in this season, as well as editorials, reference guides, and GI pop quiz education activity on AGA's website, gastro.org.
0: Thanks for listening to Inside Scope, an official AGA podcast. Make sure to subscribe to be notified as we roll out new episodes. For more GI education, visit AGA University at agau.gastro.org.